two years after the term first appeared in the medical literature, we were now in an era of evidence-based medicine. And that shows that the world was somehow ready. Hey, Brad. Greetings, Matt. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm nothing to complain about except yeah. for all the pandemics. Oof, man. Yeah, it's pandemic fatigue for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Zoom fatigue, pandemic fatigue, my pants aren't fitting correctly fatigue, lots of fatigue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As long as you got your pants on, we're on Zoom, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, pants are staying on. So, uh, so we've got uh, a really interesting episode here. Um, uh, Dr. Gordon Guyot, uh, we're going to be hearing from uh, from him. Um, not having a science background, uh, I had no idea who Dr. Gordon Guyot was. Um, but it seems like uh, if I had gone anywhere near uh, uh, clinical nutrition or uh, or anywhere near scientific literature, I would have run into the grade recommendation system and and or even the term evidence based medicine. So how does he how does he sort of fit into the nutrition science or the science community as a whole? Yeah, sure. So Dr. Guide is a is a very important figure in the field of of medicine and in particular evidence based medicine because he. He coined the term and and the interview with him, he'll kind of go through how the whole field of evidence-based medicine kind of came about. Yeah. Um, and so, but he's done a lot more than just coin the term. He's he's a he's a, a great teacher mm. um and a very serious researcher who is involved in a lot of different projects now for well over 30 years. And kind of bringing evidence-based principles alive, and um, we'll we'll talk about that. We'll get into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of um, the evolution of evidence-based medicine is really the um, the growth, or, or or first the kind of the founding of a group called the Grade Working Group, okay. and then um, how it's kind of influenced um, the methodology around making guideline recommendations, whether it be clinical guideline recommendations or public health guideline recommendations, which mm. of course would include nutrition um, yep. around the world. The GRADE Working Group, which he co-chairs with a gentleman by the name of Dr. Holger Schunemann, mm. um, and they're both situated at McMaster University in, um, in Ontario, Canada, they um, that method of doing guidelines has been adopted by over a hundred and I think now over 120 organizations around the world, whether ranging from the WHO to the Cochrane um, collaboration to um, the jo- um, Joanna Briggs Institute oh, to wow. the CDC, um, the Centers for Disease Control. So wow. a lot of groups, international groups that are well recognized. Um, like grade, use grade, promote grade. Mm, wow, that's really interesting. It's a simple system, but it's there's a lot of complexity um, within the system once you kind of get into it. Not to overuse the word complexity, but uh, it seems to be the word of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, that's that's we had talked about this earlier. That it's you know, it's almost the it's almost the theme for the for the podcast is that there's 
there's a lot of complexity in the science of nutrition. And so how do we approach that complexity in a way that um, that is uh, as objective as we can be? Um, and, and I guess uh, egalitarian as far as uh, information. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, so pretend I don't have a science background, which is easy because I don't, uh, but uh, how would you explain the term evidence-based medicine to someone like myself who doesn't have a science background? You know, it, it seems to be something that he's really well known for, right? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, it's been defined by Dr. Guyatt and kind of really the McMaster group, which was ultimately mm -hmm. founded by a, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Dave Sackett, okay. who found it. And, and we'll talk about this in the episode as well, or the episodes, mm -hmm. plural. Yeah. Um, he, he founded the McMaster um, Department of Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics. Oh. Um, so kind of the work of those two gentlemen, as well as many other um, colleagues in the field, mm -hmm. um, when they defined evidence-based medicine, it was three things. One, what are what does the evidence say? Um, what do, mm -hmm. and in particular, what do systematic reviews of the evidence say on a, on a target clinical question or public health question? Okay. Two, what does your clinical experience tell you? So, mm. if you're a physician or a registered dietitian, um, and you've seen 20 patients like this in the past, what's mm. your experience tell you? Should you give them the drug? Should you give them the, the a nutritional intervention? What are the benefits and harms that you've observed? Mm -hmm. um, and then three, which is probably um, at least as important as, as the best summaries of evidence or the systematic reviews of evidence is what are the values and preferences mm -hmm. of the patient or client in front of you? Yeah. And or the values and preferences of the general public um, in yeah. terms of making recommendations. So it's really three things, best mm. summaries of evidence, clinical experience, and the values and preferences of either the client or patient in front of you and or members of the public who will bear the actual recommendations. Wow. That's really fascinating. Um, it seems, it seems like a really great approach. Um, I, I'm excited to listen to uh, this interview clip. Um, you have known Dr. Guyatt for a while, right? You guys have worked together for a number of years. Yeah. Yeah. I joined his group in, I think it was 2009. Okay. Um, so a little over 10 years ago. Great. Yeah. So been a privilege. Yeah, good. He, he sounds, uh, he sounds like a really singular mind, uh, someone that's really contributed a lot. And, uh, I'm really interested to, to hear what the two of you talk about. There's lots of adjectives we could use, but one that I would throw his way is he's uh, very much an independent thinker, very original, very independent. Yeah, that's great. So just for our, the benefit of our audience, um, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Guide in more than one podcast episode. What we're going to hear in this episode is uh, sort of, it seems to me more like the, the foundations of evidence-based medicine and a little bit about his background and how he got into the field of medicine um, which for me is really fascinating because it sounds like he uh, didn't go sort of the traditional route. Yeah, his, his undergraduate degree was in English. So and then he, <laughs> he arrived into medicine without ever having taken a science course in university. So that's great. It, it's very it's a different story, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure that contributes to him being, uh, as you say, an, a really independent thinker. So great. Uh, we hope you guys enjoy uh, this interview clip from uh, Dr. Gordon Guyatt. 
Greetings, colleagues and friends. You may have heard of the term evidence-based medicine. Well, today's guest, Dr. Gordon Guyatt, coined the term evidence-based medicine in 1991 in a paper published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Dr. Guyatt is a distinguished professor of medicine of health research methodology, formerly clinical epidemiology and biostatistics at McMaster University and is a clinician scientist, or perhaps uh, more aptly, a clinician methodologist. He founded the User's Guides to the Medical Literature, which uh, are published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. He's the co-chair of the GRADE Working Group, which is an international group that um, has set standards for assessing the certainty or quality of evidence for, for systematic reviews. So. Dr. Guy, when I first, and I, I can probably uh, refer to you as Gordon or Gord, I've been working with you for well over 10 years now, I think. And when I first thought of this podcast, the first person I thought of interviewing was you. You've done a lot for me and a lot for my career over the years. I'll thank you again for, for all of your mentorship and, and guidance along the way. And I'm really excited to kind of just talk to you today about evidence-based medicine, about um, evidence-based clinical practice, and about more about GRADE and what it is and how it came about and uh, kind of where you are today with it. So you're currently a distinguished professor of medicine and health research methodology, as I said, at McMaster University. How did you get to where you are today. Can you tell us a, bit, a little bit about your path? So um, I was a undergraduate student at the University of Toronto, taking English and psychology as my joint majors and not thinking of medical school because I had, uh, even in high school, not taken a biology course. However, after a couple of years in university, um, I thought that uh, I would want to do medicine and uh, thought of actually going back and doing some, what was then grade 13, doesn't exist anymore, um, uh, high school courses to prepare myself for doing university science courses. However, there was one medical school in the country that accepted people without a science background. And that was McMaster Medical School. It was the only medical school for which I was eligible. So at a relatively young age, well, I think of it now as an extremely young age, uh, 20, um, I applied and gained admission to McMaster Medical School. So the first part of the story was no science background at all when I entered medical school at, at the only school that was, uh, would have taken me. And, and McMaster was very new at the time. Not only did it was the only school accepting people without a science background, it had this uh, problem-based curriculum, no tests or examinations. Your evaluation was based on what you said in your small groups. It was really uh, extremely different. Yeah, it sounds and, very innovative. And uh, there's an irony. So lots of places have moved toward McMaster, while McMaster has become progressively more conservative. <laughs> but when I finished medical school, of course, the other, uh, the other schools thought this wasn't real medicine that was being taught. And many of us were nervous. 
could we, when we put ourselves against medical students from other institutions, how would we fare? Mm -hmm. Um, So I decided I wanted to do my residency training in Toronto against shoulder to shoulder with lots of people graduating from a prestigious conservative uh, medical school of Toronto. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'd done no science in high school, no science in my undergraduate university. And in medical school, there was no base, there were no basic science courses. There were no courses at all. It was all this problem-based thing. So I hadn't learned any basic science in medical school either. So I went to U of T and started rubbing shoulders with the U of T graduates. And I found I knew as much basic science as they did. And that wasn't because they knew any basic science. It was because all the basic science they'd done uh, in early in their undergraduate and early in their medical training, they had forgotten because they never used it again. Right. So anyway, I got through and have never felt any uh, problems as a result of my uh, lack of basic science uh, exposure. So got through medical school, decided I wanted to do internal medicine, but I quickly found that I wanted to be a I wanted to be in an academic environment. I loved the academic environment, but what I loved was teaching. I, I knew very quickly I loved to teach in an academic environment. I thought of myself, I'm going to be a clinical teacher. And then I went to, I had an interview with uh, a guy named Jack Hirsch, who uh, for years was the leading uh, investigator in thrombosis in the world and turned McMaster into a huge, powerful, prestigious, uh, very productive center of thrombosis research. He was the chair of medicine at the time and called me into his office and said, Gordon, you may like to do education now, education and clinical work, but in 10 years you will be bored. (laughs) Um, And uh, uh, that would be a big mistake. That would be unfortunate. So uh, as a result of that conversation, I went into the what was then the DME program, Design Measurement and Evaluation, which was the ClinEpi program at McMaster. The, the, the program is now called Health Research Methods. And to my pleasant surprise, I really enjoyed it. And as it went along, um, and an equally pleasant surprise was that I was good at it. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, I had still been thinking my primary appointment would be in the Department of Medicine, but the chairs of the department and the dean decided that perhaps I belonged with my primary appointment in what was then clinical epidemiology, uh, and I, I took that up. The first area of research I entered into is what we would call now health status measurement, which was quite primitive at the time uh, from mm-hmm. the current view. Uh, and I started working in that area. And as I say, um, when I started, it seemed like beyond what it was uh, really special people who did original methodology. And then I found to my pleasant surprise, I could do, I had the ideas to do original methodology. So 
I identified a, another uh, grad student who was actually had a new original conceptualization of measurement because previously it all been the psychologists. And what were the psychologists? They were interested in measuring intelligence. They were interested in measuring attitudes. But measuring the effects of interventions was very peripheral to them. It, it became obvious to me that a lot of our treatments, some of our treatments are to prevent bad things like heart attacks or deaths, make people live longer. But a lot of our treatments are just meant to make people feel better. And we didn't have the tools to measure that. Right. So it's kind of like the from psychometrics into clinometrics. Is that fair yeah, to say? So a, a guy named Alvin Feinstein came up with the term of clinometrics. That would be one way to characterize it. Anyway, we quickly decided that a different framework was necessary and two different measurement properties. So the psychology me- measurement properties have been reliability and validity. Mm-hmm. And you needed something more for measuring the effects of treatments in randomized trials. This other grad student had truly changed the foundation by distinguishing between the purpose of an instrument, which was to measure differences between people, mm-hmm. versus measuring change over time. Mm-hmm. And it became clear that these were two fundamental purposes. Nobody had ever clarified this. Right. So, I, I, I said that this was the guy's thesis. It had never occurred to him that he, <laughs> that he now had an idea that could change the whole way we look at measurement. Right. And I said, Bram, this could change. This could change. Anyway, we wrote it up, and it did change how people think of measurement. What followed from that, we needed a concept in the evaluation sense, measuring treatment effects, of measuring whether a measurement instrument could pick up change if change occurred, even if it was small. And we made up a name for that called responsiveness. Mm-hmm. And then we found that a lot of these measurement instruments, you know, measuring quality of life, nobody knew how to interpret the results. You change by five points on a zero to 100 scale. Is that a small effect? Is that a big effect? Is it trivial? What is it? Mm-hmm. And we didn't know how to interpret it. So we made up another measurement property, and we called it interpretability. So that addition, that, that initial work caused fundamental change, resulted in fundamental changes in how we approach measurement. And one of the, the streams of my research in the subsequent 30 years has been the self-status measurement. What's happened to my career subsequently is that my, my core has been uh, issues in uh, evidence-based medicine, which the health status measurement is under the umbrella encompassed by evidence-based medicine, but my primary focus has been elsewhere. Um, yeah, and, and just to clarify, uh, Gordon, so um, you talked about interpretability, and so for our audience, um, the other term terminology that they might recognize more uh, aptly is minimal clinically important difference that I know uh, you and Dr. Shuneman um, then uh, wrote a paper and said, maybe we should drop the I from minimal clinically important difference and just call it the minimal important difference. Um, and yeah, so drop, yeah, drop, the, drop the C actually, but yes. Yeah, sorry, drop the, drop the C, yes, thank you. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of a, a concept that people uh, may um, be familiar with in the audience. So 
Um, and then as you referred to earlier, when we say minimal important difference, that helps us get into the thinking about what the size of the effect is. And so really moving the field away from statistical significance and into what the size of the effect is. So historically, um, clinicians were not taught to read the medical literature. And I actually remember as an intern being given advice about how to read it, which is, don't bother with the methods and results, just read the introduction and discussion and whoever the author is will tell you what the, how to interpret their work. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Dave Sackett decided that that was misguided and he wanted to turn it on its head uh, and have people ignore the introduction and discussion and read the methods and results and understand. That was his vision of what clinicians should be taught to do. And this is really where the the roots of evidence-based principles or evidence-based medicine are kind of taking form with with these insights. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Absolutely right. So he called it critical appraisal. He started running critical appraisal courses for clinicians. And they were classroom activities. So as a medical resident, it was one of uh, Dave's mentees, Brian Haynes, who was subsequently chair of clinical epidemiology for a decade and had made very important uh, original contributions to evidence-based medicine. And maybe if I'll just clarify, so Dave Sackett was one of your mentors and he was the first chair of clinical epidemiology and biostatistics at McMaster University. So That's right. Sure. Uh, So I'm a medical resident. And I go, I say, oh, I'll sign up for this critical appraisal course. Um, And at the end, I start saying, oh, I guess I'm able to read the medical literature now. So I started to read methods and results, and I found impossible that uh, a dozen sessions of critical appraisal got me nowhere. So I said, okay, I will put that aside. So then... Uh, I was thinking about what my career was going to be. Uh, as I think already said, I love clinical teaching, but Jack Hirsch then told me I would be bored if I was going to be doing that 10 years from now and encouraged me to go into the uh, master's program. And I then really learned how to read the medical literature. And it was into my second course before I said, hey, this is clicking. I can now read the methods and results and understand. And that experience has bearing on on the evolution of evidence-based medicine subsequently. So Dave Sackett has created critical appraisal and he now gets the edits as a classroom activity. And he now gets the idea bringing critical appraisal to the bedside. So he now starts taking it from a classroom activity into the wards and outpatient clinics and start talking about using the medical literature to guide your clinical practice. And that's what we, I and a number of colleagues, were now starting to do. We were starting to take these principles and apply them in our day-to-day clinical practice and encourage others to do so. And it felt different. Mm -hmm. It felt like we had entered a different way of thinking of medical practice. 
previously, it was what the experts told you without thinking very much about why they were doing this. Huge emphasis on physiologic reasoning, a fundamentally unquestioning approach, and no capacity to read the literature oneself. And we were now going and starting to question, why are we using this treatment? What is the evidence? Is it low quality evidence? Is it high quality evidence? It quickly became clear that it felt to us, and I still, 30 years later, it still feels that this was something completely different. Mm -hmm. So I then decided that I would like to run the internal medicine residency program, and I was going to make this new thing. I was going to say, this residency program at McMaster will be different, and it's going to teach you this new way of practicing medicine. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to advertise it. I thought, well, I can say a new way of practicing medicine, but it needs a name. And my first idea was to call it scientific medicine. Mm -hmm. The then chair of medicine, a guy named John Cairns, he subsequently became the dean at UBC. He was introducing me to the, to the faculty. And I sent around a document that described what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I wanted to teach this scientific medicine. Um, when I was introduced to the Department of Medicine, there was an outpouring of rage hmm. by the basic scientists who I was appropriating. They were the scientists, not I. And I was appropriating the, the term science for my stuff when it was really their stuff. Hmm. And uh, I was told by the person sitting beside the chair that about three times John Cairns was about to stand up and say, that's enough, lay off the guy. But each time I managed to control the situation and got to the end. But at the end, I decided this scientific medicine is not going to work. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a whole furor of antibodies that are, that that has elicited. So I decided, okay, it needs another name. And my second thought of what we might call it was evidence-based medicine. The discoveries that are made or the changes in the way people think are always building on what's before, whether you know it or not. I, I now was chosen as chair of the residency program. I'm going to say we're going to this program is going to do evidence-based medicine. That was sent around in 1990 to prospective candidates to come to our program. And in 1991, uh, in a paper of which I was the sole author in American College of Physicians Journal Club, was the time that evidence-based medicine first appeared in the literature as a term. Well, nobody noticed that. Mm -hmm. But in 1992, by that time, we'd had a couple of years of the program, and we published a paper that was the flagship announcement of evidence-based medicine in the world in JAMA. Fortunately, the uh, huge reason for the success of EBM was one of the JAMA deputy editors, Drummond Rennie, made it his mission to help initially David B to disseminate evidence-based medicine. So 
uh, we published this paper, uh, Evidence-Based Medicine, A New Paradigm for Medical Education and Practice. Mm-hmm. So we made this big announcement. And this paper had a huge impact. It had a huge impact. It had a huge impact. And I remember two years later, I received a newsletter advertising something or other from the American College of Physicians, the American Internal Medicine Organization that started out in this era of evidence-based medicine. Two years after the term first appeared in the medical literature, we were now in an era of evidence-based medicine. And that shows that the world was somehow ready. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Methodology Matters, a podcast on evidence-based nutrition, please head over to methodologymatters.podbean.com. If you'd like more information on the user's guides to the medical literature, please visit the Journal of the American Medical Association at gemanetwork.com. That's gemanetwork.com. And if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Guyot and his work, you can find him at clarityresearch.ca or on Wikipedia. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode of Methodology Matters.